that's going to hit me in the face if I don't move that. So give me one second here. Okay. Well, good evening, Fisherville Baptist Church. It's a, uh, it's a grace to be with you all. And um, thank you, Brian, for that kind introduction. Undeserved. And, uh, and thank you, Dan, for leading worship. That was great. And he may not have known this, but actually tied beautifully into what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, so if you have a Bible with you, which I very much hope you do, uh, please turn with me to Psalm 2 tonight, the second Psalm. And this is what we read in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Oh God, our Lord, we thank you for your word, for your gracious act of revealing yourself to us. God, as we come into your presence, reading the words of the psalmist, and seek to understand you and love your name more, that your spirit would be endowed upon me, that my words would be edited to just reflect the worth of your name. God, forgive me where I do not do such things and have the hearers forget them entirely. Oh, Lord, would you send your spirit upon us? Let faithfulness be the mark of this church. And God, make me a worthy instrument to be used by your hand at this time. For your glory, oh God, amen. So, the year was 1944. And specifically July of 1944. The World War II was going on, and D-Day had just happened a month prior, and there was a secret operation underway in Germany. It's called Operation Valkyrie. It was the plot to assassinate Hitler. We may, you, you may have heard of this from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, our dear dead brother in the faith, um, who was a, uh, a German scholar and biblical scholar who uh, was part of this operation as one of the kind of tangential figures. Uh, the, the main figure, though, involved with this operation was a, a, a German, uh, actually a Nazi general whose name was uh, Klaus von Stauffenberg. And so St- von Stauffenberg, among other German uh, higher-ups in the Nazi regime, had a plan that they were going to assassinate Hitler. And the point was that they, they didn't align with the Nazi regime's goals, and so they wanted to assassinate him and then align Germany with the Allied forces as quickly as possible thereafter. And so on July 20th of 1944, Hitler was holding a conference in a place called the Wolf's Lair. It's a small uh, compound in the, the Nazi regime at that time. 
and von Stauffenberg was obviously invited. He knew of it, and uh, this was an operation that had been in the works for a couple of years, and it was coming to a head on this day. Their plan was to detonate a bomb inside of the conference room and hopefully to kill Hitler. So what happened was von Stauffenberg, uh, among with his other co-conspirators, they go to the meeting about 12.30. He leaves the room with his briefcase, goes to the bathroom, and he has a pencil bomb. He put a bomb in the top of a pencil. He activates the bomb, puts, puts it back in his briefcase, and then he heads back into the meeting. Uh, as it were, he had the opportunity to put the briefcase about two to three feet away from Hitler's feet underneath the conference table. Uh, he then received a planned phone call from one of his uh, co-conspirators, and so he walks out of the room, takes the call, like clockwork, bomb goes off. Um, it would be marvelous if that was the end of World War II right there. Unfortunately, it was not. It was a failed attempt. Uh, there's actually a very famous photo of a boy holding up, a little German boy holding up Ger uh, Hitler's pants. They'd been singed by the bomb, but he was completely unharmed. Um, what had happened was, what most people think happened, is that uh, the briefcase had been moved over by one of the uh, German executive's feet on accident and actually blew his leg off. Uh, but it shielded the blast from, it, from hitting Hitler at all. And so in this conspiracy, uh, it, it was a failed attempt, but my goodness, it was a great attempt, right? And we, we would usually use conspiracy in a, in a negative kind of connotation. In this connotation, in this uh, instance in history, it was a good thing. It was a noble thing. But I, I'd like to, to at least share with you my idea that a, a conspiracy, it's a company of individuals who are gathered around a singular plan of action against a reigning authority. That's what a conspiracy is. And this particular one, Operation Valkyrie, the plan of action was to assassinate Hitler. And so the, what, what the center of their, the individual's conglomerate is about is, is what determines whether it's good or not. But even right now, as, as we sit here, there is a different conspiracy brewing in the heart of every man and woman on the earth. Not a noble conspiracy, as our text will show us. Rather, since Genesis 3, every human heart on the face of the earth, every creature's heart, is gathered around this singular plan of action. Overthrow God. That is the, the, the heart cry of the unbeliever. And that is the burden, that is the burden of this text. That's what we're going to explore tonight. So for those of you who are note takers, I am not a note taker when I listen to sermons, but if you are, uh, to each his own, um, I named this sermon, It is a Fearful Thing to Fall into the Hands of the Living God, taken from Hebrews 10.31. The Sovereign God, the Son of God, and the wrath to come in Psalm 2. My first point will be um, that there is a rebellious conspiracy brewing among the nations. My second will be Yahweh's response to that conspiracy. And I will end with a third point of what is our hope in, in that conspiracy to escape, to escape Yahweh's response. So look with me in the Psalm, starting in verse 1. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now notice the psalmist begins with the question, why? And this is to uh, invite you into the irony of the entire thing. It's absurdity, right? So the why introduces, for the psalmist, he's going to set the stage for what's about to happen and how silly it is, how absolutely absurd it is. The, the rulers, the, the king's actions, it's utter madness to set oneself against God most high or any of his constituents, including the anointed one, his son, is complete thoughtlessness. 
Interestingly enough, the word translated plot in the first verse here is the same word that is translated meditate in Psalm 1, which is speaking of the man of God who's meditating upon the word of God day and night. It's the idea of muttering to oneself. You're murmuring, you're, you're contemplating. And so whereas it's used in the first psalm to describe the man of God, the second psalm it describes the wicked, those who are muttering, murmuring, uh, just evil things against the name of God under their breath. And so w- w- you know, when we're thinking about this, how, I mean, how, how, how do we think about how ridiculous this is? Well, it would be as if, it would be as if a group of ants, let's just say four, four ants in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, they meet together and they say, okay, guys, it's time. It's time. The elephant who's in our community, he has to go. We're going to overthrow him right now. He's got to go. It's the end. Uh, you know, Bill, you get his tail. I'll get his front foot and we'll get him. And two seconds later, squish, squash, squish. And there we go. That's the result. So there, there's not going to be any result from this plot, right? There's nothing that they can do uh, against the elephant. He's a 12 foot high, 15,000 pound creature. And it's just not going to happen. It's unthinkably senseless. It's, it's senseless. It's thoughtless. It's wicked. That's what's happening here. Now, it's set in the context of kings and rulers, but you can't look at this and say, well, that doesn't include me. I'm not in, I'm not in a position of authority. I'm not a king or a president or a monarch. Rebellion is endemic in every human heart. They're just, they're just an example. They're just, a, they're just a, an image for us to see what they're, what's, what's happening in the human heart. They're they're the example that the psalmist uses, but if you don't see yourself in this passage, at least prior to conversion, then you're, you're a fool. To see this passage and to see the, the hatred against God includes and indicts every human being. Every human being. And, and what is it that they're saying? Look in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is the bonds and the cords, per se, of the Lord and his anointed. And now, pay attention closely, for, for the unbeliever, God's rule of law is always bondage. Always. Let me say that again. For the unbeliever, God's rule of law is always bondage. Because he loves his sin and is under the penalty of death and the dominion of the devil, God's rightful royal reign will taste of nothing but deep bitterness to his soul. So it was in the day of the psalmist, so it is in our day especially when we're talking about kings and rulers in the context, has anything changed? Can we put our hope in governmental structures, political structures, figureheads, monarchs, dictators, what have you? I would contend no. There's no hope. We have no lasting city here, um, as the scripture would say to us. And so that's the conspiracy that's going on under right now, that's, that's happening in, in the text. But, but the, the next question is, so what's Yahweh's response what is the Lord's response to this, this uh, conspiracy of, of hatred and rebellion? Well, look at me. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He laughs. He laughs. It's ridiculous. It's unbelievable. It's foolishness. It's rebellion. And God's right response is laughing. Now, it's not laughing like humor. It's not laughing like humor. It's mocking, mocking them. He is scoffing at them, for lack of a better term. 
It, it's, it's not to be understood as something that he finds funny. It's something that deserves condemnation. And God is quick to point his finger right at them and, and show them their ridiculousness. Derision here in the second part of verse 4 is defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, unless you just recently used derision in one of your you know, school papers or so forth, uh, which most of us don't. It defines it as the use of ridicule or scorn to show contempt. God holds them in contempt for what they're doing, and he laughs at them. And he says in, there in verse 5, uh, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so what, what's the big idea here? Well, it's that God is so powerful, so mighty in his person, so immensely different from us. So, as Dan said, just so different from us. He's not like us that he should have thoughts like a son of man. He's so different that, that it's just calls nothing for nothing less than, than mockery. So when he says in verse 5, though, that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury... We have to remark something here that we'll come back to later on. It's remarkable that God speaks to them. He doesn't have to speak to them. He could have left them. He could have left them in their rebellion and just let it go and and destroy them without even giving a word. And it would be very just of him to do so. But there's grace in his speaking to them. He gives them a word. Now, what's interesting, though, we'll come back to that. But what's interesting is that from the text, it would seem that speaking in wrath and I'm very sorry, I don't like this thing. Um, Speaking in wrath and terror terror and fury are the same thing. They're they're two sides of one coin. God's speech to them is his terror. The terror that they're experiencing is actually him speaking to them. It's the same thing. It's not different things. And this this should speak to us because we, especially in evangelical circles, we often speak of God's speech as graciousness and love, which indeed it is. Indeed it is, his self-disclosure. Yet there's another side of God's speech in which God's speech can be indeed terror to human beings, the wicked, those who have not found their rest in Christ. When God speaks, it is sheer terror. It is, as Isaiah says in chapter 6 of his uh, prophecy, he's being undone hearing the voice of God. And God's speech is qualitatively different than ours for this reason. His speech can actually do things. It can actually be terror. I, I, can, I can be terrifying. I can't be terror in my speech. It's impossible. But this is what some scholars call the speech act theory, that God's words actually accomplish things in, in a way that human beings simply can't. What's the best example of this? Creation ex nihilo. That God out of nothing creates everything. And how does he do it? He does it with his voice, with his words. Artists, sculptors, Humans take things that are already there and reshape them and make something beautiful, which we image our creator in that way. God takes nothing, and he speaks, and things happen. It's different than us. It's qualitatively different. It's far removed from us in that manner. And so what is, what is God saying? What is, what is God saying? He says in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, Yahweh's response, God's response is a person. His response to the conspiracy of the nations is a person. And we will get to that later, but, uh, but that person is very gloriously our, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, the context of the, you know, the Israel, Israeli uh, 
reader, you know, they would have seen this as a Davidic document, that this is about Davidic kings. Some think this was a, some kind of, this whole psalm was some kind of liturgy to maybe a coronation of a king. Um, whether or not that's true, I don't think it really affects the actual meaning of the passage. Um, but we, through the eyes of faith, we see this and we see Jesus. Because rightfully so, he's there. And the Spirit inspired the psalmist to write these words, and, and we see Christ in them. And we'll, we'll also return to that as well. So the question becomes, he's, he's, he's set this king, and, and that word set there in verse 6 could also be translated enthroned or installed. So God has installed himself a king on Zion, his holy hill. And we'll, we'll, before we get to the question, another interesting observation is that look how possessive God is of this hill and this king in Zion. It's, it's his. And so this reminds us that God's delight and the object of his plans always involves his people, his chosen people. It's his king. It's his holy hill. It is as for him. He's decided. He has chosen. His people are his delight. And they are the object of his future plans. And the question then becomes, how does God's anointed king, as set up here in verse 6, how does the anointed king relate to the raging nations? So if God's response to their conspiracy is a person what is that person going to do? That's the question. That's what the, the text begs us to answer and ask. Because God very well could have just dealt with them right there. He could have just incinerated them on the spot. Right? They're, they're being wicked. They're, they're saying blasphemies against the name of God. And he just smites them. Right? He could have done that. But he sends a person. He sends a person, a representative, a mediator, who comes on behalf of him and, and will serve his purposes. Now, the question then, as I mentioned, is what are those purposes? Look at me in verse 7. Where the, the tone switches now. We're talking that the Lord has been speaking in uh, 4 through 6. Now the Son is speaking. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And what is important to see here is that whether or not the decree there is eternity past or just a royal decree about some kind of coronation, God's declaration of the king's sonship happens the moment he says it. It's, he's begotten today because God has declared it. And therefore, God's authority is good and just and right that he would establish his king. Now, what's also interesting is, is that Davidic kings were often called sons of God because Davidic kings were supposed to image the authority and the rule of God. There was the image perfection of, of, of godliness and devotion to God. So, you know, the king had his own book of the law. Not The average Israelite did not have the own, their own book of the law. But the king did because he was supposed to be meditating on it day and night and submitting to God's law as a prime example to the Israelites. And so the Davidic kings were often called sons of God to image holiness and godliness to their people. Yet, you know, we see this. And once again, through the eyes of, of faith, post-New Testament, this is about Christ. And we have good warrant for thinking that. Turn with me, uh, if you wish, to Matthew 3.17. Now, this is often quoted, and you probably already have it memorized before you even turn there. Um, but I want you to see it's from the text, not from me. It's from the Bible. It says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And this is picked up in all of the uh, synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and what's interesting, just a, a side note here, is that that is a conglomerate statement of Psalm 2-7, uh, 
in Isaiah 42.1. And so in Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And so when, when God the Father speaks at Jesus' baptism and says in Luke, for example, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, um, he's saying, you're the Psalm 2-7 guy. You're the Isaiah 42-1 guy. You, you're both. You're, you're the son of my choosing. You're the son of my delight. You're the servant of my delight. And how about another one? Look at, um, look at Acts 13. Paul actually uses Psalm 2-7 in one of his sermons when he's in Antioch at Poseidon. He's preaching about the gospel. And this is what he says, starting in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so Paul applies Psalm 2-7 to Jesus' sonship, referring to his resurrection. That Jesus has the right to be called the Son of God because of him being resurrected from the dead. He fulfills the promises of God. Now, one of my favorite quotes of all time I will read to you right now because it is so applicable. This is from B.B. Warfield in his book, Biblical Doctrines, published in 1932. He was a Princeton theologian, turn of the 20th century. This is what he said. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lit. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before. But it brings out into clear view much of what it is in it, but was only dimly or not even at all perceived before. The Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation that follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. And so we read Psalm 2, and through the eyes of faith, through uh, belief in Jesus Christ, we see nothing that isn't already there, but more than what the psalmist himself even knew. And if this was David, which many scholars believe that David wrote Psalm 2, there's no inscription on it, so we really don't know. Um, regardless, though, whoever wrote this had no idea what we know, and yet it, every word of it is true, and so much more than he could have ha happened or imagined in, in his mind. Praise God for that. Now look with me in verse 8. Look, this is, this is the son continuing to speak uh, in terms of his, his decree that he received from the Lord. Ask of me, says the Lord to the Son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now this harkens back to, this harkens back to Israel and the, the covenant, right? So Israel is called out of Egypt by God and he places them. He says, go to the promised land. You're going to destroy the wicked nations there and inhabit it. You're going to inhabit the promised land, and you're going to take that, and then you're going to expand it to where the entire earth is a promised land, where you, you subdue the nations by obeying my laws and by propagating my name and making it glorious among the nations. Even before that, go back to the Garden of Eden. He says to Adam, you're to work and keep the garden. And what does that mean? Well, it means that, that God wanted Adam to turn the garden into a garden, and then he wanted to keep doing it and doing it until the whole earth was like a garden of Eden. Take what is messed up and, and just unbeautiful and, and make something out of it. Image myself, says God to Adam. Now what, what happened? They both failed horribly, terribly. Israel failed. Disobedient. Read Numbers 14 sometime. It'll make you really happy, trust me. Um, Adam failed. He ate the fruit. He, he sought after God. As Brian preached this morning, he, he thought it a thing to be grasped, to be like God. Now, what's interesting, what's 
mind-boggling. Look at the text. Look at the text here. It seems from the text that the son of whom is being spoken in this passage will succeed. He will succeed. It says that he will ask and he will receive. He will receive the nations as a heritage. He will receive the ends of the earth as a possession. He will ask for what Israel should have asked for and receive what they did not receive. Praise God for that. Praise God that the new son, Jesus Christ, succeeded where we have failed, where Israel failed, where Noah failed, where Abraham failed, where Adam failed. Indeed, he is the new Adam. Now, the other temptation here, and I think we have to address it because of just bad things going around, is you can't read this and automatically look at verse 8 and think, well, okay, uh, he's talking about Jesus, I think, and the nations are a heritage. Oh, okay, well, we're, we're Jesus' heritage, and Jesus possesses us, so this must be talking about believers. We're, we're the possession of Christ, right? Okay, oh, it makes sense now. This is, this is us. This is believers who are the possession of Christ. Wrong. Complete opposite. That is the completely opposite thing of what verse 8 is saying. How do I know that? Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, the rod of iron here could also be translated scepter. It's the instrument used by a king to connote his judging authority and his, his presence among his people, his position of authority, position of judgment. And look how easily, this is, a, this is a humorous thing from the psalmist, look how easily they're broken. They're like clay, freshly uh, burned out of the kiln. They just hit the ground and they shatter into a million pieces. That's how fragile these, these nations, these kings, these rulers are before the Lord. They think they're conspiring against something that's going to actually do anything. And God snaps his fingers, they hit the ground, they shatter. They're nothing before him. This actually reminds me, when, uh, when Sarah and I first got married, she's going to laugh, uh, she didn't know I was going to use this example. Uh, we got married, and we got this set of drinkware from Target. We loved them. I love them. I'm a big Diet Coke drinker, and they were great for Diet Coke, let me tell you. So we had these, these glass drink cups from Target, and the problem was they were so delicate that just one by one, like every three months, I'd walk into our kitchen, there'd be one shattered on the ground. And, uh, and we don't have any left now, but, which is really sad. But, um, so, I mean, one time I literally reached into the sink to wash one. I pulled it out. She doesn't believe me to this day that this actually happened. I pulled it out, and the bottom just fell off. It's a, it's a glass cup. And I just picked it up, and then it's like one of those weighted ones, you know, and it just fell right off. And I was left with like a, kind of like a seeing thing. And, I mean, they were just so delicate. I was afraid to put a drink in them because I thought if I just picked them up, I might just like spill Coke everywhere. Um, and that's, that's, that's what's going on here. They're nothing. They're, they're unusable. They're, they're, they're completely worthless. They're, they're as vessels that are, are so delicate and worthless for anything to be used because they're, they're too delicate. Their plans are, are completely ridiculous before God. They're, they're, they're nothing before him. Now, this is not, as I mentioned in verse 8, as we're looking forward to verse 9, this is not the language of grace. It's the language of judgment. And this should motivate us towards world missions. I think that's kind of a non-sequitur. We're just talking about judgment and stuff, and I'm talking about missions. No, it's not. I, if you don't have a heart for the people who are going to be dashed with the rod of iron, you've misunderstood the Bible. God is for the lost. The entire scriptures are for lost people. They're for you and I before we were saved. If you don't read this and your heart does not weep over a real place called hell where real people are going, 
you've misunderstood what God loves. Your loves are misplaced. Oh God, give us give us hearts to to love the people out there who don't know you. If you're here tonight, you don't know God. This is coming. This is real. Judgment is real. There's a time we're in we're in the time of grace, of time to repent. That day is coming to a close. This Jesus is coming back with a rod, and he will not spare. And that, that actually brings us into, into our final portion. We've seen now the nations and their conspiracy. We have seen Yahweh's response through a mediated son. So what is our hope? Where do we go? This is real. This is happening. What do we do? Our only hope of rescue. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, this is, this is the kind of passage that preachers love because the psalmist is basically in verses 10 through 12 just applying what he's already said. It makes it really easy. He's telling us exactly how we're supposed to take this passage. It's really great. I mean, it, it didn't cut back a whole lot of my work because I'm not a very good preacher, but I'm mean, sure Brian would love it if he had this kind of passage because he does the work for you for the last three verses. And, uh, and we praise God for that, that he, he, he not only gives us the word, he, he shows us the word. And so when we're looking at this, the psalmist spells out two different types of people. There are, are those who are perishing, and there are those who take refuge in the sun. There is no middle ground. There are none who are half perishing and those who are sometimes taking refuge in. It is one or the other. There's no gray area. You are either in Christ, you're out of Christ. Out of Christ, you receive the rod. You're broken before the Lord. Now, the believer through the eyes of faith, as I've mentioned, I, I keep saying that, but I think we, need to, we have to reiterate these things. We, we need to be reminded of the truths of the gospel and of the Bible. Through the eyes of faith, we can't help but think of Christ. This is about Christ. For example, John 17, the high priestly prayer. This is what Jesus says. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since, for, because, since, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Or maybe Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, what is the grounds of the Great Commission? And Jesus came to them, that is, the disciples, and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If that doesn't convince you, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Hear what John sees, starting in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders, he said to me, he said, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. If that doesn't convince you, look at Revelation 19. 
Starting in verse 11, this is what John sees. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Sound familiar? He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so the New Testament, interpreting the Old Testament for us, it's a great hermeneutical principle if you're ever studying Scripture. The new always informs the old and vice versa. It shows us that indeed this is absolutely about Jesus. The whole thing. Christ is coming. He is coming soon. And we must be ready for him when he comes. Now what's the proper response to this son? Well, the verbs are serve, rejoice, kiss. That's verses 10 and 11 and 12. Well, I'm sorry, just 11 and 12. I think these are all just different ways of saying repentance. What's the, what's, what's the response? Repentance. Serve me. Rejoice in me. Kiss my son. Repent. Repent of your wickedness. Repent of your rebellion. Repent of your conspiracy. Give it up. Come to me. Come. And remember I said earlier that this, shows the grace, that this psalm shows the grace and graciousness of God. Excuse me. We're coming back to that now. God is inviting these kings to repent. He's saying, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. Nothing is holding you back. Come. Why would you be destroyed? Come to me. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying right there. And and that's the graciousness of our God, that he would look at those who hate him and say, come to me. Find refuge in me. Come to me. John the Baptist says, Luke 3 about Jesus concerning his baptism and talking to the crowds. John says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Indeed, the mark of, of salvation is repentance in many ways. Yes, justification by faith alone, but there's no repentance. There's no salvation. Now, Moving into the verse, I mean, there are some difficulties here that uh, many scholars have tossed about on verse 11. Um, I struggled with this because I don't know Hebrew. (laughs) Uh, That does not serve me well in many ways, but hey, that's why I'm at seminary, right? And so after doing some study, I'm going to align with my translation here, the ESV. I think that keeping verse 11 the way it is, is is faithful to the text. And I think that verse 12 where it says, kiss the son is also correct. Um, I think I just want to mention that because you may find translations that are different than that. I think that kiss the sun best reflects what the psalmist was intending there. Uh, but in, in some, though, I think this is, a, this is the faithful rendering that we are to serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, and to kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Now, what does that mean? Now, obviously, you know, we all know kissing Jesus is not the same thing as me kissing Sarah. It's not the same thing. They're different things. They're different culturally. Uh, and and what, what, is it, what does it mean? I mean, quite, quite literally, it's just a sign of respect, a sign of deference, a sign of bowing. 
And it also kind of, it does connote relational intimacy, familial identification that you're, you're kissing Jesus because you're his brother or his sister. Um, now, when I, when I think of this verse, my mind immediately goes to Disney's Robin Hood, the 1970s animated film. You're thinking, this guy's so weird that he's thinking about this right now. Um, but, you know, Prince John is not the rightful king in Robin Hood. And uh, he's, he's always whining and stuff. And, uh, and he's got this, this hand, you know, he's a lion or whatever, but he's got this hand bejeweled diamonds and, and jewels and things. And if you've ever seen the movie, go back and watch it. It's great. And, uh, and you know, he, he wants all of his subjects to kiss the royal hand. Is, is what he says. And then actually in the movie, Robin Hood steals the jewels by kissing the rings and sucking the diamonds out of them. Um, which, great, great movie. Fantastic film. Go watch it. Now that's, that's a funny example, but that's the idea. It's that there's, you've got the royal hand. Kiss the royal hand. Bow the knee. It's not any kind of in intimate kind of thing. It's, it's, it's intimacy in the sense of friendship and brotherhood, but not in the sense of anything else. Now, as we move into kind of the final stages of, of our, our text here, I think it's tempting to see the phrase, I think I have to say this because of the culture we live in, um, you see the phrase, for his wrath is quickly kindled in verse 12, and you think, that makes me uncomfortable. Why is Jesus' wrath so quickly kindled? Because when we think of quickly kindled wrath, we think of abusive fathers. We think of sinful wrath, uh, wrath laden with with human selfishness and uh, abuse. Thoughtless, harsh, rash anger. It is not so with God or his son. It is not so. So what does it mean is the question. Well, Jesus' wrath is quickly kindled because there is no delay in silencing these utter fools for blaspheming the name of God. If you don't desire for Jesus' wrath to come quickly and silence those who blaspheme the name of God, there's something you've missed here. The quick-kindled wrath is designed to eradicate wickedness and depravity once for all. We as the church, we need to affirm that Jesus' wrath be poured out and kindled quickly so that the sin-stained world can be done away with once and for all one day. And notice finally the end of our text. Blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The only way to not be judged in the son's wrath is to take refuge in him. And so as we conclude, there's two questions you have to ask. I'm, I'm breaking the rules of my preaching professor right now. Not Brian, another guy, but he said you should do your conclusion really fast and then be done. No, no new points. I'm actually introducing two new points to my conclusion. It's going to be long. Conclusion. Two questions we have to ask. First, how do I become one of the blessed? One of those who are, have taken refuge in him. If the only place that's not going to be burnt with the fire of God's wrath is in Christ, how do we get there? How, how do we become the blessed? How do we take refuge in him? How do I become one of those people? I need to be one of those people. The second question is, why is the sun the unique refuge and hiding place protecting the blessed from his own wrath? You would think logically if Jesus is the one bringing the wrath, we need to run from him. We need to get away from him. 
But it says, no, if you want to be saved, you must run to him as he destroys and breaks the nations. Run to him. Why? Why is that? With the first, how do I become one of the blessed? You can't. You can't be the blessed because you're a sinner, just like me. You're part of the first part of the passage. You're not part of that last pass, part of the passage. You're, you're part of the first. You're one of the ones rebelling, like me. If you're a believer, you've been made new, but your old man still lives in you, and it rises up, rebellion against God. If you're an unbeliever, you're in active rebellion against God. It's not just <laughs> laced down deep in that the Spirit has been working on. It's blatant. You hate God. The, the tenant of atheism, this is one of my favorite quotes as well, is there's only two tenets of being an atheist. One, there is no God. Two, I hate him. Those are your two tenets. And so if you're an unbeliever today, you hate God. You can't be blessed in him, and you won't come to him. You will not come to him because we're too busy committing high treason against him through our conspiracy. Only an act of sovereign grace can remove the heart's love for sin and replace with an infused love for Christ. So cry out to God. Cry that he would give you a heart that wants to take refuge in him. You cannot, by the power of your own will, be one of the blessed of God. Our hearts do not want to take refuge in Jesus in their natural state. Yet, beloved, if you will only repent and believe, do as the Lord has said here. Repent. Repent and believe. This very moment, he beckons you. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Submit to him as Lord, Savior, and Master. You can't out of the strength of your will, but God can. What is impossible for man is indeed possible for God. The second question, why is the Son the unique refuge protecting the blessed from his own wrath? It's confusing. Shouldn't we be fleeing away from him? We shouldn't be running to him. He's the one carrying the rod of iron. Why should we submit to him? I'll tell you why. Because nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth hung on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very rod of iron that God the Father will one day hand to him in the last judgment, that same Father used to break him as a potter's vessel on the cross. He was crushed and broken so that we might, he might bear our iniquities and our sins, paying that penalty that we could never pay. The high treason that we committed in verses 1 through 3. He took that rod upon his own back to the point of death for the sake of us who would believe in him and put in our faith in him, treasure him, who will one day be raised from the dead with him. Why would you delay? Why would you delay? It's open. It's free. You can't do it by the power of your will, but by God's grace, repent and believe. And believe. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Indeed, because blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father of mercy, we thank you for this text, your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to a called people. And we thank you for the judgment of Christ that is to come. 
oh Lord, if our world did not have a judge, what state would we be in? We need you to come to judge the living and the dead. Oh God, let us be found, blessed, and having taken refuge in Christ. Let none be found outside of him whom you have called, as you surely will do by the strength of your own arm, not anything we have done or can do, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Amen.